Clippers Daily with Jason Mertides. All right, Tuesday, March 23rd edition of Flyers Daily with Jason Mertides. First of all, uh, happy birthday to the missus, my wife. Happy birthday, Ange. And I wish I could have given you a better present. Uh, unfortunately, it was a 2-1 overtime loss against the New York Islanders. And there's a lot of positives to take away from the game. Obviously, the result is what matters most. They got a point out of the game, but you guys all know how I feel about uh, the overtime loss point. The loser point is what I've called it, and I've ranted on it. So I can't sit there and laud the fact that they got the point when they didn't win the game uh, based on my history, and I won't do that. Um, This team played a much better brand of hockey. And we could sit here and we could say, well, they deserved a better fate because they outshot the Islanders significantly in this game, 37-20. to 20. Uh, They outhit the Islanders in the game. They were dominant in the face-off circle. I, didn't, I don't recall seeing a single odd man rush for the Islanders that if it maybe it started as an odd man rush, but by the time it entered the zone or became any sort of threat, it wasn't, it wasn't an odd man rush anymore because of back pressure and guys getting back. There was a lot of detail to the Flyers game, which is something that we've talked about here quite a bit. There was defensemen getting to pucks first in their own zone. Uh, Phil Myers, I thought, had an excellent game, and he's had a really up-and-down year. Uh, Dealt with injury, healthy scratched, and I thought that he had a really strong performance in this game. The D overall, I thought, played really well for the most part, and I thought the forwards did a good job. You didn't see... Wingers fly in the zone. There was a real commitment in the defensive zone, really from the start of this game all the way until it finished and uh, on an errant pass that ended up causing a turnover in the Flyers' D zone in in the overtime, which never even made it to three-on-three. It remained at four-on-four because the Flyers began it with a power play. But we're not at the point right now where there's, there's moral victories because the hole that's been dug in the standings. Now, you can go, the hole? They're only two points back of the final playoff spot. And two points isn't that much when you're playing the teams in your division and there's four-point swings. I understand, and that's not wrong. But the way the team has played in this month of March, uh, I I can't take moral victories away from 2-1 losses and say, hey, that's good that we lost 2-1 and not 6-1. Well, it is good that they lost 2-1 and not 6-1. They didn't get blown out. Uh, we all understand that, but and they get a point, but all said and done, they needed to get a win. They didn't get a win. I'm disappointed in that fact because they really carried the play in the game. And look, as a guy who is always willing to give stick taps to a goaltender when he has a really good performance, it's why I always say that the goaltender in hockey is the most important position in sports because of exactly what you saw last night. You saw a team in the Flyers get 37 Shots on goal, a lot of high-quality shots on goal. Not all. There was a lot of clear-sighted shots on the outside that he ate up with his glove or his blocker. But there was a lot of good opportunity in there, and Ilya Sorokin looked cool as a cucumber. No panic in his game. Was precise, under control, getting to his spot, beat the pass, square, tracking plays, all of it. And I'll give stick taps to Ilya Sorokin. He's won his last eight games. And he's a very good young goaltender 
he's not as young as people think. It's, he's a rookie in the NHL, but he is 25 after coming over from the Continental Hockey League in the KHL. So he, he's a guy that is a mature player, professional. But the Islanders, they found a way to win the game. And the Flyers, I thought the real key moment of the game was the power play with a minute 49 to go in regulation. You get that power play. You got the power play through doing the right things, moving your feet, pressure in the offensive zone. And you get that power play. And other than the first maybe 35 seconds of that power play before they changed up a unit, the first 35, 40 seconds, they got some good pressure and got some good looks. But then after that, when they changed up the unit, there was – there was no chemistry. I mean, they iced the puck on that power play as the final seconds of the period were dwindling down. They weren't coming out up the ice as a five-man unit. There was a couple errant slingshot passes where you drop the pass to a player either at the top of your zone or in the neutral zone so that that player can grab that puck and kind of see how they're lined up, go to the weak side, and determine it from there. Plus, you get the opposition kind of flat-footed. That didn't look like it was executed well at all. On that on that particular power play, and that and that's a spot, as Elaine Vigneault referred to it when we had him on just a, a week and a half ago. Those are really important segments in games where you got to be executing, and they didn't execute on that power play. And you know, you, you got the power play through hard work, you earned it, and you could have used it to end the game in regulation, in essence. But they were unable to get anything on it. They go into the overtime, I think, with still 11 seconds on that power play. So they started at a four-on-three. That gets killed off, and we never got a stoppage of play in the overtime. It goes all the way down to uh, 149, and eventually the Islanders score when there was a bit of an errand pass from Joel Farabee, uh, a little too much into the body, into the feet of Shane Gossespair. It handcuffed him a bit. That allowed the New York Islanders to keep the puck in the zone. Ultimately, they get it down low to Anthony Bavillier, who is coming uh, on the glove side, short side glove on, on Elliott. He's got to compensate for that, and when you compensate a little bit on those plays where they're coming down low like that, where there's an option to either curl hard to the net or go around the net, the goalie's got to make a decision. The decision there is, well, if I don't almost over-challenge on my short side, I'm making it really easy for him to cut to the net, but as soon as I kind of commit a little further on that short side, now I'm susceptible on the wraparound, and that's where the player needs to be able to muscle that guy from having that ability to wrap it around. Joel Farabee tried to do that. It's a tough play against Anthony Bavillier. And look, had Bavillier not hit the puck off of Brian Elliott's skate, it wouldn't have went in. He, w- he didn't get all the way around, but he got around far enough. And it got it hit off Elliott's skate and ends up in the back of the net. And it's a 2-1 win for the, the New York Islanders. The Islanders and Flyers now through five games this season. The Flyers are 3-2 and two against them. And uh, that was the first game of a, a homestand for the Flyers. We're right back at it tonight. Flyers will take on the Devils. And the, the takeaways from the game, the, the result is negative. It is. The process of that game was positive. Very positive. It wasn't perfect, but it was very positive. The detail elements of the game that we talked about right at the beginning, the you know, get pucks deep. Nicholas Albe Kubel, I thought, played his best game of the season. He was getting pucks deep, straight line player, getting on in on the forecheck, putting his body on people, had a couple nifty moves as well. And I thought he played his best game of the season. There was no frills about it for the most part. It was just effective 
fourth line hockey, and that's what he is. And he he has to recognize that that he's that guy. He didn't make mistakes in the neutral zone or high up in his own high up around the blue line in the offensive zone. It was really simple hockey that he executed very well. That was good to see. Uh, I thought Nolan Patrick in the game, it may have been the best performance out of him. I think it's the best performance out of him this season, but one of the better performances I've seen in his now third season in the National Hockey League. He had a couple glorious scoring chances that Sorokin just beat him on in uh, in the second period, no, first period, and he was all over the puck. He was initiating contact with his body to shield the puck in the D zone. He made at least four really good defensive zone plays, you know, as the center getting down below the goal line, breaking up plays, starting a breakout, supporting his defenseman. That's the kind of thing you need. When a team D is struggling, you need those forwards to come back there, and in particular your center, to, to really come down low and help help out the D. And he did it, I thought, very well in the game. I thought he had a really strong performance. I mentioned Myers, who had an active stick the entire game. Um, so there was a lot of good things in this hockey game. I thought Provorov was really good in the game. He is on most nights, but I thought he was a really good, calm game for him and handled the puck well. Uh, I, some people don't agree with this. One. I thought Travis Konechny, at least through the first two periods of the game, was absolutely buzzing. I thought he was flying all over the ice. and The puck seemed like it was magnetically attached to him. He was all over the puck. I think he made some good plays offensively, distributing, trying to get some good opportunities on uh, Sorokin. Um, and also, I thought he made good plays in the defensive zone. I didn't see the, him flying out of the D zone too early, looking to stretch the ice. Didn't see him not busting it back and applying back, back pressure, which is so important. Uh, so I saw some a, a lot of elements of this game that I liked. So maybe the way for me to term this game is I thought it was a very honest hockey game, an honest effort from the Flyers, an honest hockey game. And sometimes you can play an honest game and, and do just about everything right and not win. That's sports. The, the issue that we have when we say this, though, is that they're a team that's gotten belted a couple times, and we've seen some honest efforts in there, but it didn't lead to anything lately. Like if it was, if some of those games were a one-off, and then the Flyers responded and went on a run and won four out of six games, or even you know three out of five, whatever it is, then you would feel a little bit more comfortable taking more from this game. But this is a team that lost nine nothing last week, came back, had a really good, honest two periods against uh, the Islanders, blew the third period three goal lead, but eventually won the game, and then they come back the next night in the next game. And they get beat six to one. So, like, what you know? What are we supposed to think is going to happen tomorrow? Are we, do we just think that well, it's the Devils that are below the Flyers in the standings. They should be able to if they should be able to come into that game. Won't even need to be the, as good as they were today, and they should get a win. Well, it doesn't work that way. Uh, playing the way that they played against the Islanders was proper and it was honest, but it has to continue. And if it continues, then yes, the results will follow. And there'll be positive results because if you play like that, shot suppression, shot generation, sustained offensive zone time, not playing in your zone for long periods of time, you do all those things right, sticks in lanes, get pucks deep, get in on the forecheck, you're going to win more often than not. 
They have the talent to win playing that style. We saw it last year. And even even though they're not the team they were last year, they're flawed and they don't have Matt Neskinen and the defensive pairings aren't what they were a year ago. But if you play like that on most nights, you're going to win more games. And sometimes, again, the process of a game, the result doesn't necessarily coincide with the process. Sometimes it takes a little time. And maybe that's the case. Now, they do go into a stretch of the schedule where they're going to have some inferior opponents, teams that are below them in the standings. I don't know if inferior is the right word. You're going to see the Devils tonight. Then we're going to see the uh, New York Rangers for a couple at the Wells Fargo Center. And then you're going to see the Buffalo Sabres, who have now lost 14 straight games to wrap up the month of March for two. So this is the period of time that it's, you got to find a way. You got to find a way to get points, to get into playoff position, and to get your game in order and have it be there to be executed in detail and with consistency. Because after you get out of this calendar month of March, as I pull my schedule over, again, so here's the deal. Tonight, it's Flyers Devils, 7 o'clock. Then on Thursday, Flyers Rangers, all these games so far at the Wells Fargo Center. And then Flyers Rangers Saturday at Wells Fargo, uh, a 1 o'clock puck drop. And then they'll play on Monday, the 29th, against the Buffalo Sabres, 7 o'clock on the road. And then they'll be in Buffalo also on the 31st, two days later, against the Sabres. Then you're going to look into the, the month of April. And you're less than two weeks at that point to the NHL trade deadline, which is coming up on April 12th, just about three weeks away. But what happens here in this stretch this week, the remainder of this week? So when you look at this week, including the Islander game that took place tonight, they got the one point out of that. So all said and done, they have four more games this month. All said and done, including this game tonight, they all said and done after this game last night, they have five games left. One New, one New Jersey Devil game, two Rangers, two Sabres. Okay, again, against inferior teams below you in the standings. In these five remaining games, with a possible of ten a possibility of ten points in the standings, you've got to come out of this stretch and put yourself in prime position. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean five and zero, all ten points? No. I mean, you'd love that if that would happen, but. You know, the New York Rangers are playing a little bit better hockey right now. New Jersey has has played decent hockey at points this season. Flyers are on a back-to-back against New Jersey. New Jersey's had a rest day. That that's, But that is what it is. Can't do anything about that. you got to just deal with it and find a way to dig down and, and get a win. So, and then, and then the Buffalo situation. So, of those five remaining games this month, Flyers got to come away with that with a minimum of seven or eight points some combination to get you the minimum of seven or eight points. You need to have three wins in those five games. That gets you six. So if you go three, one, and two, that gets you eight points. Take two overtime losses, but you get a point for those, and you lose one game in regulation. That would work. That would be a good stretch right there. And you're likely going to make up some ground, and pending how long Boston is is mired in, COVID protocol and the 
stoppage that they're in, you can make up ground on them. Now, they're going to have games in hand, but again, games in hand don't mean anything until they're games won in hand. And then you're going to enter the month of April, and you're going to get right back into what is a very tough schedule. You're going to start off the month of April. Mind you, after you have your first back-to-back days off of games that you've had in 33 days. I mean, they haven't had back-to-back days off between games all the way since back on February 21st and 24th. I mean, that isn't an eternity, or 24th to the 27th, excuse me. That's an eternity ago. So you get the two days off, rest the body, get ready for what could be a grueling April. You'll start off with one on the road against the Islanders. Then you'll head to Boston for one. Then Boston heads to Philly for one. Then you go back to the Islanders and take them on in on the island once again. Then you come home against Boston. I mean, look at look at that first four games. Islanders, Boston, Boston, Islanders, Boston. Okay, so after that, you get Buffalo for one game at home. Then you got Washington and Pittsburgh on the road. That looks like a really important part of the schedule. Then you come back home. You take on Washington for one at home. Then you get the Islanders. Then you get two on the road against the Rangers. Two on the road against New Jersey. And then back home on the 29th of, of, of April against New Jersey. And then the final week of your season to kick off May, you get the New Jersey Devils for one, Pittsburgh for two, Washington for two, and to end with the New Jersey Devils. So are they out of it right now? Mathematically, no. Are they in a difficult situation? Pretty difficult. Are they in a situation where they need a miracle? No. But the play has to look like it looked last night. It has to be honest. It has to be detailed. And if they can do that, this is a huge if. And I feel like we've been burned here before. But if they can do that and start to turn it around and start to get goaltending and start to have good defensive zone structure, which helps your goaltending, start to get timely scoring, start to get the special teams into a better situation, power play and penalty kill, stay healthy, then then absolutely making the playoffs is an absolute possibility. And when you get into the playoffs in the Stanley Cup playoffs, it, it doesn't matter what you did in the regular season. It doesn't. It matters what you are at that time. If you come in and you're a number one seed coming in, but you've just you know, you've just lost six of your last eight, and you're just kind of stumbling along because the games didn't mean that much. You were getting in, and your goaltending is maybe not sharp. The intensity level is not there. You can get in the playoffs, and you can get bounced. Sometimes those teams that come in that fight and claw their way to get in are already playing at a heightened level. They're there. The other team has to try and get there, even though they were a team that's ahead of them in the standings. So how this plays out is going to be anyone's guess, and how – Chuck Fletcher handles this trade deadline. Again, will be unbelievably interesting. And we're going to get to Elaine Vigneault coming up in just a moment. But um, I didn't solicit questions on my social media, but I just had a, a few people hit me with some. So I just wanted to knock a few out before we get it, before we get to Elaine Vigneault. And, and so let's hit a couple here real quick. James Homley tweeted in and he said, Explain to me why the Flyers continue to pass backwards. He said, I can understand getting control, but it's the first move they do. If you see the Isles forechecked until they got control, sad, because they played much better. So I think what he's assume, what he's alluding to would be the Flyers and, and the slingshot back pass 
for entry, zone entry on the power play. The reason teams do that, I'm not sure, James, if you know like the actual reason behind it and and actually some numbers behind it. And I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but uh, they'll be roughly close. The reason why they do it is because you want to move up the ice in a five-man unit. You have your guys split at the blue line on each wall, evenly distributed. You have another player kind of in a third of the ice. And as that drop pass happens, the player getting the drop pass, assume it's Claude Giroux, picks it up inside his blue line, and he's got everyone in front of him. And as soon as you drop that that pass, everybody on the opposition tends to go flat foot. So you go, okay, they're flat foot. That's where they're stationary. Two things. I can catch them flat foot, and I'm in motion, so that's an advantage. And I can also read the defense. Okay, you go, okay, strong side is the right side. I'm not going to skate right into the strong side. I'm going to cut to the cut to the strong side and go back to the short side, dish it off to my guy waiting at the blue line who's open. There's my advantage of players on the ice that I have one more, and then I'm going to get pucks deep into the zone. I'll work it around the outside, a couple rims, and then I'll get my power play set up. That's why they do it. And I read a study about it that regular – carried in zone entrances on power plays versus power plays that dump pucks in and in essence lose possession dump it in and then forecheck it to get it back or to just do the slingshot move and they found that teams entered the zone with the slingshot move got in the zone quicker and got set up quicker i think it was about nine and a half seconds sooner than those other methods and it was also a more effective way to enter the zone with possession and retain possession to then get your power play set up. So that's why they do it. It wasn't perfectly executed in that game. When it is perfectly executed, it, it works. But again, that's something that needs to be worked on in practice, and they don't have practice time. And the, you know the drop passes were off the mark, then a player's got to skate across to get it when you want that player to pick it up in a straight line stride. So that's the big part of that. Um, Bernie Olila, Olila tweeted in and said, uh, Jason, how much do you love Joel Farabee? Yeah, what's not to like? Um, he didn't have a great pass on the play that ended up winning the game for the Islanders. It was kind of a casual pass across his D zone. As Gossespierre is coming towards him, and he just didn't get on at what he wanted, misfired with his accuracy, came in into the skates a bit on Gossespierre as well. I'm not going to get on Gossespierre for that because the pass that Farabee threw to him was a bit of a grenade at his feet, and he just couldn't control it. Eventually, it goes over to the far boards, and that's what keeps the puck in the zone, and we know what happens. Eventually, puck gets to a Bavillier. He outmuscles Farabee and tucks it in. So, um, but but other than that, Farabee's been great. I mean, he he's getting smarter and smarter. You can see the game when you watch him. You see it slowing down in his head. You look at him, you go, well, look at that play. A little curl here, a little curl there. Uh, you know, a little puck, laying pucks into area, knowing a guy can skate into it. Uh, I think he just looks great. I think the, the jumps that he's making are very big and huge for this team. Um, Nick Ruger tweeted in. I got a bunch of these ones, too. He said, uh, is there a reason why Elaine Vigneault only playing Claude Giroux thir- three minutes and 28 seconds in the first period? And that's a great question. It's something, actually, 
that I pointed out too, as uh, we were starting the second period up in the booth, and I grabbed our stat sheet that they come by and drop off to us, and I'm kind of looking at it, and I got out my Sharpie marker, and I circled that, 328, and accentuated it was Claude Giroux, and then I just wrote next to a Y, and I handed it to Tim Saunders, who was actually on the air, and it's something to keep an eye on and the usage of a guy like Claude Giroux. I know he's like a third-line player. They're calling it the third line, but and that was a little low, obviously, in that period for Claude Giroux in an opening period. He was out there for some face-offs, got right off the ice. I don't know if he's dealing with something. He's fighting off an injury, and they have to monitor his situation. We don't know because we don't get that kind of information right now. To me, it doesn't look like he's fighting anything. I think he's playing fine when on the ice. Uh, but there wasn't a lot of ice for him in that first period. It's just 328. Now, he was 328 after the first period. After the second period, he played five and a half minutes in that period and went to 507, or excuse me, 907 uh, of ice time in the second period. And then with the rest of the game, uh, with overtime, and he actually ends up in the game over 16 minutes of ice time, um, which is fine. 16 minutes is fine. And you know, he comes on the ice sometimes, and it's just take a face-off, important D-zone face-off. He's not out there with his line. He'll take the face-off, win it, get possession, get off. Yeah, so he plays a vo- high volume of shifts. Um, but I think that that's also – that's something the coaching staff is preaching, and you're going to hear Lane Vigneault talk about it too, is get on the ice, do your job, and get off the ice. Overstaying shifts, it becomes a detriment. You can't get caught out – in the way this game is played at this speed and this level on tired legs. Well, not unless you either want to take a penalty or get scored on. And it it's really up, back, off, up, back, off. Because if you're doing it properly and you're up, back, off, you should be gassed because you got to be working that hard because that's the pace of the game and that's how it's being played right now. So um, it was a little weird, though. Three minutes and 28 seconds, I'm kind of going, hmm, that's interesting. Um, let's go to uh, uh, Robert tweets in. And he says, I've been on cap friendly for about two hours looking at possible D-man besides Eckholm and David Savard uh, to help the Flyers. He said, Kevin Shattenkirk has two years at 3.9 mil per after this season, older but brings experience and skill. What would he cost? Uh, I'm not really interested in Shattenkirk, so it's not something I'm really going to dig into. I think if you're going to fix the problem, let's fix the problem. I was listening to... 31 Thoughts the podcast on my way down to the game tonight. And I was listening to Elliot Friedman and Jeff Marrick. And they're talking about, you know, there really hasn't been any trades yet. There's not much going on. Are there going to be deals happening? When will it start? And obviously one of the big names that's been brought up as kind of the jewel of the trade bait board right now is Matthias Ekholm. And we talked about him. You know, the big left shot defenseman from the Nashville Predators has a year on his contract beyond this. $3.25 million AAV. Not a huge hit. But he's only under contract for one year. So anything you give up for him, you could lose because of the expansion draft if you don't leave him protected. Or if you do protect him, you're leaving somebody else unprotected. So that's the cost of that acquisition as well. Not to mention that the reported price for a guy like Matthias Ekholm, who you can also plug into your power play, also is pretty high. I mean, you're talking a first-round draft pick, a prospect, a top prospect. You're not going to give him, you know, some scrub prospect that's probably not going to make the NHL anyway. But a top prospect like a Morgan Frost 
and, and maybe even a second round pick or maybe a first round pick and, you know, two prospects, a high end prospect and a mid level. That's a lot to give up for a guy that you may lose in a couple of months. So some of that has now shifted Nashville's thinking a bit that, and Elliot was talking about the Flyers in particular in regards to Ekholm and pivoted to this, that, well, maybe it makes more sense, and he was kind of reporting that he's hearing some things, that if they're going to make a trade for one of their defensemen, maybe the guy is not Matthias Ekholm because teams are leery with the lack of control and term about what they give up for him. And if you traded for a guy named Ryan Ellis, then he has six years left of term. He's in the second year of an eight-year $50 million deal, so his cap hit is $6.25 million. So is that a guy that makes more sense? Because if you're going to make the trade, you're looking to solve your top pair. You feel like you have the one piece in Ivan Provorov, but if he, he might be the Robin right now, but they need Batman. And if they can get Batman for the next four to five years, a right-shot Batman, Ryan Ellis, then that would be a significant move. And then you don't have to worry about your top pair for a number of years. And that's, it's like football. If you have a quarterback, you don't have to worry about not having a quarterback. When you don't have that position, you need to get that position or you're not going to have success. It's the same thing with a top pair. So to be able to have a right-shot Right shot, left shot, top pair with a veteran player. He's 30, Ryan Ellis, with six years left on his deal, has played in a lot of big games, can play big minutes, can play the role, then that obviously would be a move that would be a big splash. And what you give up for him is going to be more as well because you're getting a player that's got six years of contract left that, that they like. But David Poyle's an aggressive GM, and if – the right package is there, then that's absolutely in play. The other thing that's interesting about it is that Tony Androkidis, who covers uh, the Phantoms, does a great job, has tweeted out on a number of occasions over the past couple of weeks that there's been a much larger scouting contingent at Phantoms games. And in particular, multiple people, I think four scouts from the Nashville Predators had attended a couple of Phantoms games in the last 10 days. Now, you don't send your scouts up in a pandemic to look at the Philadelphia Phantoms unless there's some conversations there and specific players that have been talked about for a possible deal. So that that pretty much tells you something's happening. But what I understand is maybe Ekholm is not the target. Maybe the target is Ryan Ellis. Now everybody's saying, can the target be uh, Roman Yossi? No, they're not They're not moving Roman Yossi. But maybe Ryan Ellis is an option. And then one other thing I kind of floated to Brian Boucher, and we talked about it on yesterday, today's episode, and we had Boucher on Flyers Weekly, is he's like, well, what do you do? What do you do to fix this? You can't band-aid it. You want to fix it for the next bunch of years. And my solution to it was to find a way, pay the price, to get Seth Jones out of Columbus. There's some talk that he may not want to resign there when his UFA contract is up, which is another season beyond this. And if that's the case, 
may want to get something for him. Flyers have a lot of pieces. You trade them the pieces to get them, and then you extend them. He's making $5.4 million now, but you got no problem extending him to an, you know, a $10.5 million seven- or eight-year deal. When you get a player like Seth Jones at 26 years old and you pair him with Ivan Provorov, oh, by the way, Seth Jones, right-handed shot, you pair those two together, and this might be a bit of a pipe dream, but who knows? Maybe Chuck Fletcher's investing that, investigating that. The other part is, is, is that something that's more likely to have in an offseason? Probably. The other part is, Chuck Fletcher doesn't have a tremendous amount of leverage right now. Rome is burning. What he's looking for is a big cause of why Rome is burning. And no GM's going to do you a favor and say, hey, I know Rome is burning right now, but I'm not going to really put your feet to the fire. Just give me this instead. Nothing work that way. They're going to try and get everything they can because their butts are always on the line too. So, if you, I mean, if you lose a player like Seth Jones, you better be able to sell to your fan base that, yeah, we don't have Seth Jones anymore. We loved him. He was a great player. But look what we got. We couldn't say no. So that's another interesting one out there as well. So we'll, we'll see how Chuck handles this, but th- these are very important decisions going forward for this Flyers team. All right, let's get to two more questions before we get to Elaine Vigneault's postgame press conference. Flyers 1648 tweets in. Uh, Mike Polsky, two. He says, hey, big fan, uh, you got to think trade now. There's not much AV can do. You know, you've almost heard AV say that. When he said he couldn't put his finger on it after the 6-1 loss on Saturday night, I think he couldn't put his finger on it because the person to put the finger on is not here. (laughs) And he said something last week, too, that we haven't been able to find chemistry amongst our D pairs where they can play together, develop chemistry, have e- develop accountability with each other, and that's something that they still have to find a way to get, and they have some other options. Well, are those other options in-house? Well, we've seen all the options in-house in different combinations. So if that is going to be fixed, it's going to take a body from the outside. But again, I mean, nobody in the NHL is trading right now. Is everything going to happen in the last hour of the trade deadline coming up on April 12th, I doubt it. And some teams, like the Flyers, do not want to wait that long. They're going to make a trade. They want to make it yesterday. Get that player in here. Let's start to turn the tide now. The quicker a player gets here, the quicker he can get assimilated, the quicker he can help you, and the more he can mitigate the damage of a team that's struggling right now and just the shot on the arm that comes with it. All right, last question comes from Kevin Yarnell. He says, I heard you say this team has great coaching. When are they going to address the turnovers and stupid attempts to clear by NHL players? It's way too late in the season for not just these mistakes, but so many of them. Yeah, great point. Kevin, you're absolutely right. And look, coaches coach and players play. We lauded Elaine Vino last year for the job that he did. He brought in accountability. He brought in just a, a new a new life to the team and an attitude. And they were a team that was resilient. they lose, then they would win. They didn't put losses together in the second half of the season from early January until they lost back-to-back games against the Islanders in the second round of the playoffs. It took that long. And that's not what we've seen this year. 
Um, did Elaine Vigneault and the coaching staff forget how to coach in the offseason? Or does he not have the right pieces to be able to deploy them in a way to get what he got from his team last year? Now, there's not a lot of turnover here. Some guys have t- taken steps forward. James Van Riemsdyk is playing the best hockey I think I've ever seen him play. Joel Farabee playing extremely well in the jump from year one to year two. But there's other players that they were counting on, defensively especially, like Sanheim and Myers that have had erratic play or just not good seasons so far. And guys like Eric Gustafson, who was brought in and is not a defensive specialist, he can give you something offensively, but if you have to put him in a position to be a defenseman, and it's weird because what he needs to do for his job is in the title of his position is defend that that hasn't been a successful campaign so far he he's had stretches of games where he's been really good offensively few and far few and far between stretches of games where he hasn't been a total liability defensively same goes for ghost but overall the whole of Niskanen has not been felt and ha- not been filled And with that not being filled, it's a typical rough situation. And now you're not getting goaltending. I mean, you want to show me a good coach? I'll show you that he's got a good goaltender. And when the goaltender's not playing good, all of a sudden that coach doesn't look like he knows what he's doing. Because when a mistake happens, it's in the back of your net. When you're getting good goaltending and bailout goaltending, when you make a mistake, the save's there. It's It's no big deal. It was a great save. That's his job. Make the save. Breakdowns happen. But when all those things in confluence are struggling together, that's what you have with what's happened in this month of March. We'll see if they can get it back. And how they follow up the game last night with the game tonight against the Islanders, again, is going to be fascinating. And this is the most important part of this season. I talked about the fork in the road. They took a right, and somebody tweeted this to me. I'd love to give you credit. They took a right at the fork in the road, then they took a U-turn, then they took a right, and where are we now? I'm dizzy, so we'll see where it goes from here. But let's get to the Flyers head coach. He had a chance to address the media after the game, Elaine Vigneault, and here's what he had to say, all leading into the game against the Devils coming up this evening. I know you're not happy with the result, but did you feel like the process tonight was what you've been looking for for a few weeks now? Yeah, I mean, we came to play tonight and, uh, you know, right from the beginning, I think we were uh, responsible. We had several good opportunities uh, tonight. Uh, their goaltender was was obviously a big part of their win. Uh, he made some big saves at the right time. Um, it's disappointing, uh, but, uh, you know, we went in there building, uh, played a real strong game. That first game weren't as good. The second game... I thought tonight we battled hard, um, but they were able to obviously get the, the winning one there at the end. What did you see from Sean tonight? And can you kind of detail what he's dealing with with his hips? Uh, it's a typical uh, hip flexor, flexor for a hockey player. Uh, but um, as far as I understood from uh, both him and, and Jimmy, uh, he felt uh, he felt fine tonight. Obviously, no no one's at 100%, so he's not at 100%. Uh, but uh, he was good to go. 
Alan, um, recently you guys have had trouble training together multiple strong performances. It sounds like you're happy with this game despite the result, but how do you guys follow it up tomorrow, even with the frustration of not coming away with the win tonight? Well, by, by controlling what we can control, and uh, that's tonight, uh, you know, getting some uh, nutrition, some hydration, some rest, getting up tomorrow. Uh, we'll have a couple of good meetings uh, and preparing ourselves uh, against the devil who... Uh, uh, our good skilled team, and uh, we're going to control what we can control and get ready for our next game. Elaine, uh, you've had some tough games, obviously, the last week, the Rangers game and, and Saturday's game, but, but your team has responded, I guess, admirably. What, what's that say to you? Oh, our guys want to win, and uh, they want to play well, and they want to be responsible, and uh, they got themselves ready today to uh, to play and have a good game, which I thought uh, we did. Uh, in my estimation, we should have scored more than one. We had some outnumber situations there where we didn't quite execute, uh, but uh, we had some real good looks. And uh, at the end of the night, uh, their goaltender was the difference tonight. Just wondering what, what you saw from Sean, uh, not Sean, I'm sorry, uh, Shane Gosper's game, his return to the lineup. Yeah, yeah I, I liked his game tonight. I thought, uh, you know, he was quick going back for pucks. Uh, he was playing a tight gap, and uh, we need uh, him to follow up with another good performance tomorrow. Aline, if you look at these shifts that uh, Claude Drew's line had tonight, they had a lot of shifts in volume, but pretty kept them pretty short for the most part. You know, got in, forecheck, got off. Is that a little bit more of what you're looking for from the team as a whole? Well, I think right now with, uh, you know, the number of hockey that's being played by, by not just our team, but all teams, Short shifts is is a must, and uh, you know uh, you've got to change at the right time and trying to make sure that when you're on the ice you're uh, got the energy and and you can go out there and execute. And I thought that's what their line was trying to do tonight. I never thought I would hear the terminology for sports of the process as much as we as we have this year. <laughs> that was the Sixers thing. The process, this trust the process. Well, the process for the Flyers has been kind of the the hot hot buzzword of the season. When the process wasn't good in the beginning, they were winning. Process got better, they started losing. It doesn't make any sense. Well, this is what I know, too. The Flyers have held their opponents under 30 shots in a game since February 24th. 16 games. They've gotten that part straightened out. Got to get other parts straightened out. And then have them have them all straightened out, and everybody moving in the same direction, at the same compete level, with the same attention to detail, and you're going to be a good team. They had a lot of those elements last night against the Islanders. A lot of detailed hockey was being played, but ultimately they came out with a loss, an overtime loss. What did they do tonight? Well, we'll find out, and we'll break it down on tomorrow's episode of Flyers Daily. So everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of Flyers Daily. I hope you enjoyed it. I stayed really calm, which I'm very proud of myself for. And uh, enjoy your hockey tonight, and we'll talk to you on tomorrow's Flyers Daily. Never feel